So how many of you know the name uh, Harry Shearer? The name Harry Shearer? He, well, actually, you might know him under one of his other names, which is Ned Flanders. He's the voice of the insanely, dogmatically pious, but still somewhat kind, Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. He's also the voice of Reverend Lovejoy, that some of you know in my first year in ministry, a child in the first congregation I served called me Reverend Lovejoy, and then was aghast, and I said, well, you know, I hope I become as famous as Reverend Lovejoy one day. Harry Shearer is also known for being part of Christopher Guest's ensemble acting troupe. They do things like Waiting for Guffman... Best in Show, Spinal Tap. Now, a number of years ago, he was being interviewed on Fresh Air, which, you know, airs here locally on the NPR station. And Terry Gross was asking him about this acting troupe that Christopher Guest has assembled because many of the same people appear in the same movie or different movies over and over and over again, really building a kind of energy with each other. The thing that Christopher Guest's acting troupe does that is really so unique is other than setting some parameters for the scene, some ideas of what the outcomes may be, everything else is done improv style. It's all done with the actors working, playing off of each other, improving, riffing. And what Terry Gross asked Harry Shearer, she said, it must be, it must seem that there is so much safety so you can work with each other, so you can improv together. And he said, no, it is not safe at all. What it is, is that there's so much trust between us. It's not safe, but trust makes it possible. This is what he's saying, that this kind of acting is always risky, that there is always this stepping beyond, sometimes stepping off and falling off indeed too, That's why actually improv theater is better than improv movies because there's no rewinding the tape on that one. Improv allows you to really take risks, allows you really, from the experience of trust, to create something that you didn't know was going to exist before you say it. There isn't safety there, but trust makes risk and exploration possible in the first place. It is not safety, but trust that lies at the heart of any real adventure. And that launches us in today to Star Trek. Now, I do have to say, I am not a Trekkie. (gasps) Aghast. (laughs) How many of you are going to walk up and leave out of protest right now? Now, I also have to say that in the original Star Trek and Deep Space Nine and Star Trek CSI or whatever they have going on these days, I don't... Uh, you know, come on. I mean, sequels are one thing, but it's not enough already. But anyway, my favorite original Star Trek was The Trouble with Tribbles. Now, I've told Trekkies this, and the way that they look at me, it's almost as if I was talking to a gourmet chef, a real gourmand, and I've told this person that I love food, but PB&J sandwiches, they are my favorite. The Trouble with Tribbles, with Tribbles, which is like, if you haven't seen it, it's like these little rabbit-like creatures that just populate and populate and breed and breed and breed to the point where they're almost overtaking the Enterprise in this old episode. The point of that being my favorite is that the Trekkies think I don't really know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I agree. But it's still my favorite. I can't help it. Now, even though I'm not that much of a big fan, 
Star Trek is part of the iconography of American culture. So I did love it in the movie where we heard that line, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a physicist. I did love it when they had the inside joke about the person from the Enterprise who's wearing red. And sorry if any of you are wearing red today. I hope this fate does not befall you. But the person who is wearing red, who is then beamed down to the planet below, you're a goner. And I do love that. Let's see if I can do this here. Are you going to do this with me? All right. Some of you are much. Wow. What a congregation of geeks. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Now, one of the reasons I was drawn to this movie, and it's a pretty good movie. I'm not going to get into all the ins and outs of it. It's a pretty good movie. It's enjoyable. One of the reasons I was drawn to it is that it was helmed. Its captain is J.J. Abrams. And J.J. Abrams was one of the masterminds, one of the people who conceived Lost, which pretty much for me is the best thing that has ever, ever been on television. It has just ended a season, so I am in deep mourning, and indeed the final season is coming up next year. So if I look really glum and then really excited over the next six months, just ask me about loss coming to an end, and pretty much you'll have your answer right there as to why I'm wearing that expression on my face. Well, a lot of the things that are in the Star Trek movie are in Lost. Time travel and paradox, the intimate connection between creation and destruction, children who live in the shadow or in the light of their deceased or missing parents, and ultimately, attention that is transcended, finally, between certain kind of dualities, between certain kind of oppositions. Now, at the core, at the core of Star Trek is the relationship, the friendship, and also we see in this first movie, because this is a story about origins, the tension between Spock and Kirk. Now, Spock, I can't really remember, to be honest with you, if it was like this in the original, but at least in this reboot, Spock, the half-Vulcan, I got that part right, yeah, is not without emotions, but he primarily views his world through the lens of his logic, first and foremost. And it's Kirk on the other side who primarily acts from his Gut. Now, I just want to show a hands here. How many Kirks do we have in the audience? How many Spocks? Oh, I'm a half and half. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Now, actually, if you're here with your mate or partner, it's interesting to see if you're both Spocks or both Kirks or one and the other. See if you balance each other out. Well, very much the movie establishes them as a yin to yang kind of relationship. There are two halves that need each other to be whole, and it's the core of their friendship. It's also the core of why they first struggle with each other. And it is the story of the beginning of their lifelong friendship. I am very much more, as I just raised my hand, much more a Kirk. I respond to things. Those of you who have been with me here since the beginning at Wellsprings, this is not a great surprise to you. I am much more a Kirk. But the Spock part of me is necessary as well, too. I got a very, very pointed reminder of this this past week. I was on the road twice this past week when those Amber Alerts went up. First, I think, for a Yukon Denali and then for a black Cadillac. And turned on the radio and I heard what it was about. And at first, emotionally, you know, my heart went out. This idea of a, a woman who was abducted and perhaps her child was at risk, too. And then I talked to a friend of mine who's in the area who tends to be more Spock to my Kirk. And they said, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And they didn't believe it for a very good reason. 
Because unfortunately, it is, if you remember the story, quote-unquote, two black men abducted this woman. Anyone remember the story? Anyone remember the story of Susan Smith? Anyone remember the story of, I think, Robert? I can't remember his last name, the fellow in Rhode Island who said his wife was murdered by a black man. And Susan Smith said her children were abducted and killed by black people as well, too. See, logic we know, is the ability to see patterns in things and to recognize how we can, with our emotions, misread the world and how also, how easily we can be manipulated when we are only led by our emotions. So logic is, of course, right to be skeptical about certain things. But the cool thing about the movie is that it is not just about the differences between Spock and Kirk. It is really about the singular quality that they both share and that makes them, in their beginnings, lifelong friends. They are both explorers. They are both born to be adventuresome. They are born to go beyond what they know into the next step and into the next place that they are called. And one of the things that really called for me to my mind and my heart, is that my best friend in the world is very much a Spock. He and I met the first day of college, and we have been tight ever since. He is a research scientist. He's a biochemist. He does AIDS and cancer research. And unless he keeps it really at a dumb, dumb, dumb down level, I don't get what he does. But this is the thing. Both Paul and I, even though we interpret the world through different lenses, we see the world the same. In college, the last two years, we roomed together in the most politically incorrect house, I believe, on campus. It was also by far, out of all the people I knew at my college, which was very, very progressive, very, very left-wing, it was by far the most racially integrated group on campus of people voluntarily living together. And we made fun of each other constantly. Part of that was because we were tired of walking on eggshells about our differences. Part of it is that we were so tired about being fearful of saying the wrong thing. So as our way of celebrating our differences, well, I'm not going to tell you the jokes we told about each other's backgrounds because you probably wouldn't think too kindly of me. But this is the point. It was done in the situation of trust. And where there is trust, there is the opportunity to go beyond boundaries and see beyond superficial differences. And this is actually a place where the 1960s version of Star Trek was truly, truly revolutionary. It envisioned a world which in many ways was a universalist dream. That deck of the USS Enterprise is a place where everyone's gifts are welcome from so many different perspectives, from so many different backgrounds, and indeed you can see it even more in this rebooted version. It has this vision that in many ways is a fulfillment of what Paul in the Christian scriptures talked about long ago, that there is one body, but there are many members, and that all members of that body, when they work to their best, sustain the body, each doing their own separate, wonderful, necessary parts. It is about serving and recognizing that greater good that when we can see the similarities between us, 
we can join our hands and truly make differences in each and every one of our lives. So yes, Star Trek is about the future, and hopefully it's the future that we as a society are more and more and more moving towards. But it's also a story about the beginnings. It is a creation story about origins, about how things began. And what makes all creation possible, whether it's your own life, whether it's the life or the lives on the USS Enterprise, whether it's the friendship between Spock and Kirk, is trust. I want to show you a slide right now. I showed it to you before. This is, some of you might recognize this. This is Maslow's hierarchy, hierarchy of values. It is not the only picture of how we grow as human beings, but it is a pretty good representative one. And one of the things I want to point out to you is that way up at the tippy top there is that what he calls the need for self-actualization, to truly be who nature or God, the universe, has equipped us to be with our natural gifts. One of the things you will recognize is that way much lower down, the second to bottom one, security. Security is necessary. This talks about the security of living in a society that protects people against hunger, violence, extreme poverty. However, to truly grow into who all of us can be together, individually and as a community, we cannot stay down on that level. If safety is what we desire more than anything else, point blank, we will not grow. The truth of this really came very much to the fore to me yesterday as I was hanging suspended 30 feet in the air next to a rock wall. Now, this was inside. This wasn't outdoors. I wasn't really in any peril. Although one of the things that happens when you go to a rock gym and start to climb is you have to sign at the very beginning the fact that this is an inherently risky, even somewhat dangerous thing that you are partic participating in. And as I really, really, really tried hard on a 5.8, those of you who are climbers, I was able to get up to 5.6, almost all the way to the top of 5.7, 5.8, no way. So as I hung there in my harness, feeling pathetic about myself, I reminded myself, just staying at the ground, just staying at the ground level where the security is, is not what life is about. One of my favorite teachers, a guy named Parker Palmer, who some of you might know and I refer to him often, he tells a story about the fact that for much of his life, he had been very much in his head. He had been very much a scholar and a student. And he came to a point in his life where he felt very unbalanced about the fact that he had not lived fruitfully in and with and celebrating his body. And so he decided to test himself. He decided to go beyond the security level, climbing up higher. And so that, as he tells the story, is how he found himself one day clinging with all his might to an actual side of a mountain one day while he was doing outward bound. He was being told by those above him and those below him that he was tethered there and they could trust him. But what he had to do while he was clinging to the rock wall was lift his feet up, push himself away from the wall, and start to climb his way down. He did that for part of the way until he could see that below him, just below him, was a big crater where he would have to descend into. 
And he couldn't. He couldn't swing himself into. So the teacher of Outward Bound up above said, Parker, this is what you'll have to do. You will have to push off and swing yourself over to the other side of the crater so you can walk down that way. At that point, he made a noise that was something like, beep. He became almost pre-verbal in his fear. And as he stuck there, clinging, holding on, doing the exact opposite thing that would actually get him down the face of the rock wall, the face of the mountainside, the teacher up above said, Parker, is there anything wrong? I don't want to talk about it, was his response. And she said, now you've learned the truth. The truth of outward bound If you can't get out of it, get into it. And with that, he found the strength to push himself away and push himself off and push himself over and begin his trek down the mountainside, down to the bottom again. This is a story not about safety, but about trust. Trusting that his teachers knew well enough to point him in the right direction. Trusting that he had the inherent capacity to do what was being asked of him. Now, if what he wanted was safety, he would have recognized only this. That his insecurity was something that was wrong. His insecurity was something that he needed to resist. And he needed to be pulled back up himself. Not find his way down. This is the problem. With all regimes, political, religious, otherwise, that promise safety above all else. One, they're wrong. As one of my great religious teachers, Reverend Dr. Forrest Church, says, we were just studying this this past week, one of the small groups I lead, life itself is a fatal condition. There is no absolute security. So any people who promise you absolute security are lying. They are telling you more than they can deliver. But even if you believe it, there is a deeper cost. The deeper cost, if you begin to see that insecurity is a sign of failure, is that you will not just stay down below, you will cling to the very ground from which you are destined to fly and climb from. You will, and we will, if we believe that security is the best thing we can ask out of life, we will build a world that's a cage. And eventually we will imprison ourselves within it. If we believe only in the desire for safety or comfort, then all insecurity starts to feel like failure rather than as some insecurity can be the invitation as it is to new and deeper life. One of my favorite quotes is by C.S. Lewis. He said, comfort is the one thing that you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will neither get comfort or truth. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, a greater despair. It is one of the great sadnesses of our times, I think, that we are expert, absolutely expert, at treating discomfort. And to quote Seinfeld in a different context, not that there's anything wrong with that. But that sometimes in treating the symptoms of discomfort, 
we do not ask and equip ourselves the deeper question of why am I uncomfortable to begin with. There are many, many promises of the spiritual life. But as you know, comfort is not chief among them. In the ancient Hebrew scriptures, the prophets said, beware for other false prophets. And they said, you can tell them because they sound like this. They proclaim peace, peace where there is no peace. What they are preaching is that you might be comfortable before you are really ready to grow. One of the many different forms of insight that I try to give when people come to me for some pastoral counseling when they are struggling is unless it is a very acute kind of physical discomfort that really they should take care of. One of the things I try to get people to see, try to get them to ask themselves, is are they truly listening to their discomfort? And to try to move us all beyond the place where we will just anesthetize our discomfort. We'll just sort of put ourselves to sleep, put ourselves into that comfortable place that may keep us from the kind of growth that ultimately we need. But I do want to say that discomfort on its own is not enough, just as we shouldn't relish comfort for its own sake. There's a certain kind of moralistic rigor that actually is a form of sadism that says that everything good you have must be difficult and you must suffer and struggle for it and with it. That is just as false as looking for comfort all the time. Discomfort is only as good for us as we learn to ask this question. When you are uncomfortable, is it because you are trusting things that are not worthy of your deepest heart's desire to trust? Are you uncomfortable because the things that you have set your heart upon are revealing themselves not to be as strong as you need them to be? If you listen to that question and ask yourself, what does the discomfort point me to? Then you will grow and we will grow. I can see it on some of your faces. This morning, some of us are struggling with that kind of discomfort. I would encourage you, do not look for the premature variety. I would remind you of a friend of mine from many years ago. They had lived a very, very difficult and painful childhood. And indeed, it looked like they were destined for a life of nothing but their own internal struggle and failed relationship after failed relationship and things that once they got them didn't seem to hold the promise of what they once did. And always life was out there beckoning on the horizon, but always beyond this friend's grasp. Well, at one point, it all fell apart for them. They became very, very acutely depressed, even to the point where they started to have some very rough thoughts about their own life. And this friend, he went to see a counselor. And he said this, what I'm going to ask you to do is trust me. I want to know where this discomfort is coming from. I don't want you to prescribe anything for me yet. I'll take that when I want to start to get better. But I want to start to know, maybe for the first time in my life, what is going on inside of me. 
And I think that all this discomfort and all this struggle is something real trying to get out. Now, that may not exactly be where you are this morning, but chances are you're human, all of us. So you're struggling and we are struggling with some level of discomfort. I want to ask you to remember, now or in the future, the story of my friend, who with someone that they trusted very, very deeply, sought not safety, but to ask the question, what is my discomfort telling me? And I do not want to put myself to sleep. I heard my friend telling me when they told me the story years later. What they were doing was searching for the appropriate trust. The Hindu word for faith is shraddha. It means not a creed that you believe intellectually. It means not something you can recite out of your mind. Shraddha, the word for faith, means what we set our hearts upon. Faith is not about creeds. Faith is about trust. Faith is about the potential within all of us to seek that deeper trust that takes us beyond mere security, that takes us beyond the desire just to live a comfortable life, the kind of trust that allows us to be afraid and to push away from the rock wall and swing over to where we need to and then find our way down. This ultimately is what happens in Star Trek. The reason it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship is that Kirk and Spock learn to trust each other. They learn to need one another. And because of that, that's really the best part of the whole story is the end. Space, the final frontier, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Except they change, update it, not where no man has gone, but where no one has gone before. But it's because they trust. They are adventurers because they know that the winged life, the life that pushes away from the rock wall, the life that sometimes even trips and falls and stumbles because we will and we do. This is the kind of adventure they can embark on. And this is why the Enterprise is named exactly that. So today I wish you this. I wish you just enough safety that you will stay out of harm's way or harm will be kept far from you. But we even know that wish can't entirely come true as much as I would wish it for all of you. So this is what I really wish you. I wish you trust enough in the right things and in the right people and with the depth of spirit necessary so that you can boldly go where you've never gone before. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of the climb, incline and steep descent. We ask for the tools to live this life with depth. Seeking not ultimately just, just for comfort, 
but to know that there is a deeper truth of comfort that cannot be secured by aiming at it. I would ask that all of us right now search your hearts and your mind, your soul, who all of you are, who you as an individual are in your essence. Where is your discomfort beating you? Where is the discomfort asking you, begging you even? I am your soul. Recognize me. I need to grow because you and I have an adventure before us. Amen.